Well, this is such an exciting time in the life of our church. Not only have we been using this month to look back and celebrate how God has been so good to us over the past five decades, but we're about three weeks away from beginning a brand new chapter in the life of our church as we begin and start our second location on the west side of Evansville, uh, Crossroads West. Now, you need to know that we're gonna start the beginning of uh, September 10th weekend uh, with two services, 9.15 and 11 o'clock. Two services will begin that week in 9.15 and 11 o'clock, and the experience on that campus will be very similar to what you might experience here at Newburgh. Worship will be live. Uh, the teaching will be actually a high-quality live stream from this campus. Child care, everything else is uh, almost the exact same that you would experience here at Newburgh. And the reason why we are doing this is because we know that someone's proximity to a local church can determine whether or not they bump into Jesus, whether or not they follow Jesus. And so rather than people coming to us, we determined that, hey, let, let's go to people. Let's eliminate obstacles that people may have. One thing that we say around here is that God always uses people to reach people, and that's just, that's just true, right? And so some of us, we, we hear about this West Campus, and we maybe want to be a part of it, and I want you to know that, that we can't do this without you. We need you to uh, serve and help us launch this campus. And so regardless of where you live, even if you live outside of the 15-minute radius of uh, Crossroads West, would you consider being a part of the launch team, which will simply consist of attending and serving at Crossroads West for at least the first six months, all right? And uh, after that six months, you can either keep attending or come back here to Newburgh. Now, if you live within that 15-minute radius of Crossroads West, we want that campus to be your church home, all right? And so if you want to be a part of the launch team, uh, I want to encourage you to uh, let us know by going to our website, cccgo.com forward slash west. Scroll to the bottom of the page and let us know that way. Again, cccgo.com forward slash west. Scroll to the bottom and let us know uh, that way that, that you want to be a part of uh, our launch team. Now, for the past four weeks, we have been in this series where we have been uh, looking at uh, a particular celebration that God gave his people called the Year of Jubilee. And we've kind of paralleled it with where we are as a church because the Year of Jubilee happened on the 50th year. And the point of the Year of Jubilee was for the Jewish people, God's people, or the Israelites, to be reminded of who God is, who they were, and it was a, an occasion for them to realign their lives with God's story. And so one of the things that God specifically told them to do during the 50th year was to forgive one another, to unite back together as a people and to release each other from debts that may have occurred from the previous 49 years or so. Now, one thing that we know about God is that he is highly relational. He uses relationships in our life to not only tell us more about who we are as people, but also about who he is as God. And, and since the beginning of time, that has been the case. All right, the book of Genesis tells us about what that moment was like whenever God first created the world, the stars, the moon, the galaxies, the seas, the mountains, the animals, and uh, even us as people. And, and there was a brief moment in time where it was utter perfection on this planet, okay? We can't even imagine what this was like because it was a moment in time when there were no tornadoes, no hurricanes, no stomach ulcers, diseases, cancer, no skinny genes, okay? I mean, it was just an awesome time in, in, on life of this planet. But God looked down and he said, hey, look, everything is good, but one thing, something is off, something is missing. What was that one thing? Look at what God said in Genesis chapter two. He said, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. 
And so God is saying this to our first dad, a guy by the name of Adam. He's saying, hey, look, it's not good for you to be by yourself. You see, in the previous chapter, we're told that all people, all humanity has been made in God's image. And he says, let us make God in our image. And so the implication is that, that our creator is a highly relational God. And so again, our relationships tell us more about who we are as people and also about the God who created us. You don't need me to tell you that, that you need community. We all know what it's like to feel rejected, to feel like we don't belong. And, and many of us, we, we will do whatever it takes to avoid those feelings of isolation and separation, right? One Harvard professor uh, participated in a study that took over 20 years that involved over 4,700 different people. And the results of the study was rather simple. The results simply revealed that as you become more happy in life and as you become more joyful, it's kind of contagious because you tend to pass that happiness or that joy onto the people around you. Now, one of the researchers in this study is a guy by the name of James Fowler. The conclusion of this research, he, he said it like this. He said, our work shows that whether a friend's friend is happy has more influence than a $5,000 raise. Can you believe that? A $5,000 raise. And so this study revealed that you would actually prefer to have a happy friend next to you than if your boss came to you and said, hey, I'm going to give you an extra $5,000 because you've been working really hard this year. Now, we might think that that's just not true, but if you get a $5,000 raise, you just need to give it to your pastor who will be your friend, okay? Then your pastor will be happy, then you will be happy as well. We both win, okay? <laughs> and so today we're gonna look at how Jesus, when he steps into our life, he not only delivers us from our past, he not only delivers us from brokenness and sin and darkness, but he actually delivers us to community. He delivers us towards the relationships that we were designed and meant to experience. And so if you have your Bibles or Bible app, I want you to go ahead and turn to the book of Mark, okay? If you don't own a Bible, there should be a black Bible right in front of you. If you're worshiping with us back in the chapel, it should be on one of those tables as you walked in a minute ago. Uh, Mark can be found towards the back of your Bibles. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Acts, Romans, okay? And uh, Mark kind of serves as a biography on the life of Jesus. He was an eyewitness to the different things that, that Jesus said and did over the course of about uh, 33 years when Jesus lived here on this earth 2,000 years ago. And today we're going to be in chapter 5, beginning uh, right at verse 2. Now, as you're uh, turning there, let me just set the scene up for you because Jesus and his close friends and followers have just, they're, they're about to end a boat ride, okay? And so they were on one side of the lake and Jesus said, hey, let, let's go towards the town on the other side of the lake. And, and as they took that short boat ride, it was at night, they went through this storm. His followers thought they were gonna die. They were really scared. They were really fearful. And then Jesus calmed everything and, and they docked their boat at this certain town. Now, you need to understand that when Jesus said, hey, let's go to this town, the town that he was referring to, it probably shocked his disciples. It shocked his followers because no good first century Jew would have gone towards that town. It was a town full of non-Jews, Gentiles, and they were considered defiled. They were considered unclean. And so if you really wanted to honor God with your life, you would have avoided this town. At least that's what they were told. And, and so Jesus did just the opposite. He said, hey, that's, that's where we're going to go. And so it's dark out, and the waves are splashing up against the boat as they dock. Check out what we read happens next in verse 2. When Jesus got out of the boat, a man with an impure spirit came from the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had 
often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him, Mark says. Night and day among the tombs and in the hills, he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. And so out of nowhere, Jesus' friends all of a sudden have this front row seat to the worst horror movie that that they've ever seen in their life after they docked their boat, okay? A man who had been possessed by several demons bolted from a graveyard that was about two miles away and headed and made a beeline straight towards Jesus. You see, evidently, a group of people in this guy's community had started some campaign to kick him out, saying he wasn't good enough, he couldn't belong here. He had been driven away from his town because of, really, who he had become in life. I mean, his life, his life was a mess. And this guy, this isn't what he signed up for. I mean, this, this wasn't God's plan for his life. I mean, in high school, on his yearbook, whenever he stated his life goals, his life goal wasn't to, to reside in a graveyard, to live among the dead. No, but he ended up there anyways. You see, I bet he, he didn't intend to get addicted. He, he didn't sign up to be abused as a kid. He, he didn't mean to say what he said when he was really angry in that moment. You see, regrets, what ifs, and I wish I would have tormented this guy's mind day and night. His condition was more than a mental illness, though. No, possessing this guy with with demons was Satan's way of distorting God's image because it subjected him to isolation where he was all by himself. You see, loneliness makes it more challenging for us to know who God is. The lies that are whispered in our ears become louder and more believable for us, doesn't it? And so here's one thing that I want us to pick up from this story. It goes like this. that You are not yourself by yourself. You are not yourself by yourself. You see, the more this guy was by himself, the less human he felt, the less human he became. Senator John McCain uh, was a Vietnam War vet, and uh, he was in isolation for about three years uh, when he was captured and, and was spent a, a lot of that time in solitary confinement. Well, one of the books that, that he wrote, a biography on his life, he describes for us what the experience was like in solitary confinement and how he found out ways to survive whenever he was in isolation. He says it like this, of all the activities I devised to survive, nothing was more beneficial than communicating with other prisoners. Why? Well, it was simply a matter of life and death, McCain writes. Knowing the men in my prison and being known by them affirmed our humanity and it kept us alive. You see, there's something about being all by ourselves that forces us to forget who we are. And so this man in our story was confused about his identity as a person. There was this massive gap between his personal individual worth and how he had been treated in life. And honestly, if we're, if we're being really realistic here, not much has changed in our world, right? I mean, last weekend, a bunch of white supremacists gathered together in Charlottesville, Virginia, and, and protested because they believed that their race, their nationality is more superior and is better than someone else. Now, let me be really clear about something. Let me be really clear about something. Racism is not only a demonic attack in an attempt to lessen someone else simply because they have a different skin color, but it is a lie from the pit of hell, and it is an assault on the creator God, whom said all people have been made in the image of God. All right, racism. Now, some, somebody needs to tell these white supremacists that the Nazis were defeated 70 years ago by our military, and it can happen again just as easily. Nazism is not patriotic. Nazism is satanic, okay? 
You see, in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, that there is no, there is no place for white supremacy. In the kingdom of God, that there is no place for us to argue about differences based upon skin color. No, in the kingdom of God, all people have been made in the image of God. We all have equal worth and value, regardless of what we look like. In the kingdom of God is the place where all people can belong. It's the place where one day, every tongue, tribe, and nation, every skin color is gonna come before the throne of God and rejoice at who he is and and who they are in life and say over and over again, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And so make no mistake about it. And so we as a church are gonna continue to be a community that is all about running after people whom society has looked looked over and has forgotten about. We wanna continue to be a church where we can say no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been in life, you belong here. We want want to introduce you to Jesus who, who wants you to be a part of this community called the church because it's actually a place where we've all learned, this is our story, we've all learned that it takes a community, it takes a family together for us to remember who we are, to remember our worth, value, and dignity. Because life can sometimes just be really hard, lonely, and it can lie to us and tell us that, that we're nothing more than fill in the blank. I love how so many of you are doing this so well. Blair Jones is one of our section hosts, and uh, he got to know someone in his section recently, and, and come to find out after sitting down with this lady, she was going through a really difficult time because her grandson had recently made some really bad decisions and, and had uh, been put in jail. And so Blair walked away that weekend feeling like, I, I've got to do something. I feel a little bit helpless here. And so he let us as a staff know about what was going on with this particular lady and her family dynamic. And, and so by the time uh, we were made aware of it, he was actually released from prison. And so we got one of our pastors to, to meet up with him. And since then, for about the past three weeks or so, one of our pastors has been meeting with him at Starbucks and has been mentoring him. Now this guy, he now has a job. He's now been, um, he now has a plan for his life. He now has a plan for his future in a way to avoid some of the mistakes that he has made in the past. But you know what? That almost didn't happen. That almost didn't happen because it would have been really easy for somebody like Blair to overlook someone who was hurting, someone who had been forgotten. And as a result, there's no telling what this guy's future would have been like. When our connections director, Nikki Langston, told me this story, she said it like this. She says, that's why we do what we do. I'm just one person. Blair is just one person. Patrick, you are just one person. But together, together we can care for one another and help others see who they really are. That's what we want to be about as a church. Let's pick back up with our story. I check out uh, verse six. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and fell on his knees in front of him. He shouted at the top of his voice, what do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? In God's name, don't torture me. For Jesus has said to him, come out of this man, you impure spirit. All right, so don't, don't, over, don't, don't miss this moment. Don't just skip over because the sight of Jesus, the presence of Christ walking towards this man forced the demons that had consumed him for a better part of his life to shriek, to scream, and, and to fall down before Jesus. Now, we later learned that the demons referred to themselves as legion, which in the Roman world described about 6,000 different soldiers. And so the point was, this man was consumed by more than one demon. It may have been 6,000, it may have been less than that, but it was more than one demon that had consumed this man. And so why, you have to ask yourself, why were all these demons that were together, that were one, why were they afraid of one man, Jesus Christ? 
Well, in the book of James, in the Bible, James is the half-brother of Jesus. He describes it like this, that the demons, even Satan himself, at the, the sound of the name Jesus Christ, in his presence, they shudder. Now, in the Greek word, that word shudder, it describes that feeling that you experience whenever you get really scared and the hair on your arm stands up. Do you know what I'm talking about? You're watching a really scary movie and some scene catches you off guard and you kind of jump when you're watching it on the couch. All right, shuddering is, is that feeling that you experience whenever your spouse wakes you up in the middle of the night and says, hey, go get your gun. I think somebody's just broken in. You know what I'm talking about? It's this, it's this perplexing, almost uh, state of being frozen in fear. You were terrified. You, you were mortified. And yet that's how, that's how the demons respond to the presence of Jesus Christ. They fall down, not necessarily as an act of worship, but you see, that was their way of acknowledging who had greater authority, who had greater power, and that was Jesus Christ. Now, make no mistake about it. Jesus doesn't just have power. Jesus is power. Jesus doesn't just have authority. No, he is authority. Jesus doesn't just have fearless attributes. No, Jesus is fearless. He is our warrior. He is king. He is sovereign. And the demons know that. That's why they fell down. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? My name is Legion, he replied, for we are many. And he begged Jesus again and again not to send them out of the area. Now, I want you to notice how the demons responded to this guy. Okay, back then, a name uh, symbolized more than, it was more than a label, title, or the way that you may be identified with your family. No, it established worth, dignity, or respect. You see, somewhere along the way, this guy had saw himself as nothing better than the thing that he had been enslaved to. He was in bondage, and he thought, I'm no better than this. You see, it's possible It's possible for us to become so enslaved to sin and brokenness that you start to see yourself as something or someone that's not more than whatever that thing is. And so when you're enslaved to work, all of a sudden you think that your worth and value rides upon how well that project goes or how big your client base may be. When you're enslaved to alcohol, you see yourself as nothing more than an alcoholic. In other words, our behavior is symptomatic of a much deeper issue, of a much bigger problem. You see, beliefs drive behavior. We know that, right? The truth is we won't experience lasting change in our life until we begin to think differently and until we begin to believe differently. And we all need help doing this. We can't do this on our own. And so that's why the second thing I want us to take away from the story goes like this. Belonging happens before believing. Belonging happens before believing. Now, some of you might be thinking right now, Patrick, are, are you watering down the truths of Scripture? I mean, this is an effort to dilute the Bible, right? Belonging before believing. Actually, it's just the opposite. You see, the truth of Scripture is so important for us, and it has such power to, to teach us and tell us a better way to live that it is really our job to eliminate as many obstacles as possible so that people can really see that the truth of Scripture is relevant to their life. It has the power to change everything for them. And this is about, this is about belonging before believing, making people feel included. Now, did you notice that, that Jesus didn't run back to the boat whenever the demon-possessed man approached him and and once he got in the boat, he said, I, I just, I can't put up with him. I mean, his lifestyle is just too offensive. There's too much darkness in him. I, I can't believe he made some of those decisions that he did. He didn't turn to his disciples and say, you know what, this, this guy right here, he deserves to be living in a graveyard. Can you believe the mistakes that he made in his past? He didn't tell the demon-possessed man, hey, you know what, if you just believe these five things first, then I'll deliver you. No, Jesus didn't do that. And this is why the church, it should always be a place where you experience both truth and grace. 
Jesus met this guy in his circumstance and he gave him a second chance. He helped him take steps towards the kind of community that he needed to start realizing who he was and the person that God had created him to become. And whether you know it or not, we all need grace in our life because we have a really tough time living up to truth. I mean, truth is just really hard to live out sometimes, isn't it? And Jesus didn't wait to call all of his followers and, until they realized how sinful their lifestyle was or until they were reliable, educated men. He, he didn't do that. Jesus didn't tell the woman who was caught in the act of adultery, you know what, these religious leaders who pulled you out of that bedroom just a minute ago, I agree with him. You should be stoned. You should be put to death. He, he didn't say that. Instead, Jesus is obsessed about meeting messy people where they were at and seeing them for who they were, at, who, for who they were becoming rather than what they had done in their past. And you see, here's where I think it hits really close to home for us. If Jesus never hung out with really broken people, I would still be lost. And so would you. This is why we as a church, we are called to meet people in the midst of their mess. But for some reason, the longer we follow Jesus, we think that that success looks like this. The more Christians I know, the more Christian friends that I have, the more Christian people that I'm surrounded by, the better off that I am. And yet Jesus is really calling us to more. He's calling us to something greater. A friend of mine named Garrett attends Crossroads here, and uh, he told me that back in the spring before our Easter services, he invited one of his neighbors to Easter here at Crossroads. And he was a little bit surprised by his neighbor's response. He said, no, I'm not going to go. I don't celebrate Easter. And if I did celebrate Easter, I sure wouldn't go to Crossroads. Well, I'm sure that Garrett had every right and excuse to kind of write his neighbor off and kind of dismiss himself, and uh, yet that's not what Garrett did. In fact, he only went out of his way even more to love him. He's looked for intentional ways to to show his neighbor that he cares for him. Everything from making dinners for him, uh, not avoiding him, engaging him in conversation. And and here's the thing, his neighbor still hasn't come to Crossroads and he may never respond to his invitation to come here. But you know what? Garrett understands that he doesn't really have control over that. He doesn't have control whether or not his neighbor surrenders to Jesus and if he ever converts to Christianity. But what Garrett does have control over is taking intentional steps to love him, to meet him where he's at, so that this neighbor of his can understand that he has been made in the image of God and that he is valuable regardless of of what his beliefs may be in life. And so let me just ask you something. How messy are you willing to get to make someone belong even if they never believe or behave a certain way? How messy are you willing to get to make someone belong even if they never believe or behave a certain way? You see, Jesus never justified not loving people simply because they were, he was offended by their lifestyle. No, at the sound of his voice, Jesus gave this guy's dignity back. He, he delivered the demons from them. He met, the, he met them where he was at. And so the demons flee from him, and the demons were later told consume about 2,000 pigs nearby. Okay, look at what happened next in verse 14. Those tending the pigs ran off and reported this in the town and countryside, and the people went out to see what had happened. Can you believe this? When they came to Jesus, they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons sitting there, but this time he was dressed, he was in his right mind, and, and, and they were afraid. Right, this guy was no longer who he used to be. Right, Jesus had, had changed him. You see, when the demons took a hold of a couple thousand pigs, it was proof of how enslaved this guy was to darkness. Now, can you imagine all the bacon that was wasted whenever those pigs ran off the cliff? 
it's just a waste, you know? But you know, it's as if Jesus is saying right here in this moment, you know what, it's only a matter of time until the things that you think no one else can see, the things that you're trying to hide, it's gonna ambush you and it's gonna blow up and destroy the most important parts of your life. And so if you find me, if you bump into me, only I can deliver you. The third thing I want us to take away from this story goes like this. You are loved to the extent that you are known. You are loved to the extent that that you are known. This guy didn't have to hide anymore. He didn't have to pretend that he didn't have a problem. No more faking it. No more long sleeves to cover up his cutting. No more lies. Jesus gave him permission to say this and mean it. I used to be that way. Uh, That that, that used to define me, but I'm different now. I, I bumped into this Jesus guy, and he began writing a completely different story for me. He got his dignity back. You see, Jesus specializes in giving us not only a new name, but also a new beginning in life. Our identity in Christ, it is so secure that we don't have to worry about our mess-ups, screw-ups, mistakes, habits, addictions, or sin defining who we are. You see, Jesus envisioned his church being a place, a community, where we'd be free to bring to light all the things that we try to hide, deny, and suppress. And yet, what if the biggest threat for you to really receiving love is caving into the pressure of pretending that you don't have a problem? What if the biggest threat to you actually feeling love is caving into this pressure of feeling like I've got to put on a certain front, I've got to maintain a certain image? I think in some ways, a lot of us, we view faith a little bit like watching an episode of The Brady Bunch. All right, hang with me here for just a second. By show of hands, how many of you love The Brady Bunch? You loved watching it back? Yeah, there's a story of a man named Brady. I've, I won't sing it, okay? I'll spare you of that. But, uh, you know, if you watch The Brady Bunch, the same thing kind of happens in every episode. It's the same kind of plot line, same thing that uh, a, a problem develops, right? And then all of a sudden, the remainder of the episode is spent solving that problem, and then they are a happy happy family after that. Everything is cool. No matter how angry they were, things got resolved. They had peace and they lived happily ever after. And bam, that's what a perfect family should be like. You know what I mean? Does that describe any of you guys? Yeah, I didn't think so. All right. Now, some of us, we we kind of approached faith in the same kind of way. And and here's what I mean by that. We heard a lot of people say, hey, you know what? I I used to sin, I used to have a lot of problems in life, then I met Jesus, then I didn't sin anymore, and life has been a walk in the park. It's been a bed of roses since then. Really? Because I'll be honest with you, it doesn't always work out that way. Following Jesus, it doesn't always end well for us. We're not promised that a bow is gonna be tied on the end of our story. We're not promised that it's a happily ever after story for us, okay? You see, grace isn't just a one-time need that we have whenever we put our faith in Jesus. It's an ongoing need that we have. We all need grace because we fall short of keeping the truth in our life. And so think about it like this. Think about it like this. We withhold receiving love the more we cover things up. We withhold receiving love the more we cover things up. This is why our natural tendency whenever we're talking about sin is to justify it, is maybe to excuse it, to point the finger, to blame or whatever that may look like for you, give a partial confession. But what's that last 10% for you? All right, what, what's that one thing or what are those few things that you don't want anyone else in your life to know about? I think one of the most powerful things that we can experience in community is when we anticipate someone telling us, how could you, whenever we get vulnerable, whenever we confess something, whenever we share our thoughts, but instead of hearing how could you, we hear, me too. I, I know what that's like. There's something powerful about it when someone can identify with you in your brokenness and in your struggles 
And then all of a sudden, you come alongside one another and you help each other out, live out the truth of what Jesus says is best for us. Now, there's something powerful about that phrase, me too. It's, it's a very simple. And I want us to just practice this, all right, for, for just a second. I'm going to state something that is true about me, and you simply respond to it by saying me too. Okay, so I'll make a statement. I need full crowd participation here. You respond by saying me too. All right, let's start out really simple. I'm wearing shoes right now. All right, I love summer. All right, I love music. Come on, you can do better than that, okay? You're not really confessing anything here right now, okay? I've made a lot of mistakes in my life. I'm a sinner. I think Patrick is much better looking and a much better teacher than Rick Kyle. Come on. That is not cool, guys, not cool, all right? And there's something powerful about community when we can, again, identify with one another. We, we have each other to, to help each other out, make it, make it through life. And that's what the community of Jesus is really all about. That, that's what Jesus intended for this place to be. You see, we'd probably feel a lot safer to open up if we knew the people around us are struggling in the same exact way that we, that we are. And you know what? This world's a really lonely place. And as a church, we can't, we can't afford to mess this up. <laughs> and so if you're in here today and you're worried about how, how am I gonna pay my bills at the end of the month, I want you to know you are not alone. If you're in here today and you're just uh, hurting in life because you've gone through a divorce this past year, I want you to know that you are not alone. If you're here today and, and you're just embarrassed because you thought you would be married by now, you don't wanna be single, I want you to know that, that you are not alone. If you're here today and you're struggling with depression or anxiety, I want you to know that, that you are not alone. If you're here today and, and your house is just a little bit too silent because you just dropped off your last kid at college, I want you to know that, that you are not alone. If you're here today and you recently had to shave your head because you're going through chemo treatments, I want you to know that you are not alone. If you're here today and you struggle with ADD, I want you to know that you are definitely not alone, all right? If you're here today and you struggle with ADD, I want you to know that you are not alone. <laughs> in a way, that, that's the picture that Jesus imagined whenever he said, hey, on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. It's gonna be a community of people to come alongside one another. After the demon-possessed man left Jesus and, and went back to this town, I imagine that he still had scars and wounds from where his chains had been. And, and maybe his first reaction was to cover them up. Maybe he wanted to hide them and act like they weren't even there to begin with. But to have done that would have, been lessened, would have lessened the opportunity to tell others about what Jesus had done for him. You see, that's why this church, Crossroads, it is not a perfect place. And it's a good thing that it's not a perfect place because if it were perfect, this would be a place where I wouldn't belong, I couldn't fit in, and neither could you. And so we want this to be a place where everybody can belong. And take a look at the last thing Jesus told this man in verse 19. He said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. They were astonished at what had happened. And so Jesus delivered this guy from darkness and delivered him into community. Now, it's no coincidence that Jesus sent him to this place called the Decapolis. Now, in a way, that this moment was kind of a foreshadowing of, of what was to come whenever the church began in the city of Jerusalem about a month after they nailed Jesus to a cross. The Decapolis was a predominantly Greek area full of non-Jews and Gentiles. And so by sending this guy back to this area, that was like Jesus, in essence, saying, hey, I'm for all people. All right, not, not just some people, not just for the Jews, but, but I'm for all people. 
But the strange thing about the community of Jesus, it's a little bit upside down, but it goes like this. We're not the point. This community, it's not really the focus. The church isn't a club full of personal benefits or rewards. And so the last takeaway I want you to pick up from this story goes like this. We are drawn in to be sent out. We are drawn in to be sent out. We, we belong to go out. The pattern of Jesus' miracles were always the same. He healed, he delivered, he brought dead things back to life, and then he sent, he sent them out. And this is why the biggest threat to any church is giving into our natural tendency to be inwardly focused. One author says it like this, that if the message of the church is for everybody, then we dare not create a culture that's an obstacle to anybody. A couple weeks ago, I was, uh, I was having dinner with my parents, and, and for some reason, I began asking my dad about his family heritage. He didn't really grow up in a Christian home. His dad never went to church. And, and so I just began asking. I was really curious, like, why, 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 why? What, what, what was Grandpa's story? Well, the more he opened up, I, I really understood things. You see, whenever my dad's family moved over from Cuba to South Florida, my great-grandmother was only 12 years old at the time, and whenever they moved to Florida, her parents died of tuberculosis, and so she went to go live with her aunt and uncle, whom she didn't love, she didn't really connect with, they hated her, and, and that went definitely both ways, and so it just wasn't a good living arrangement. And so the day came when her aunt and uncle took my great-grandmother to the local orphanage that was run by the church down in Key West at the time, and and there at the orphanage, they were about ready to drop her off. They went to the lady behind the counter who was checking a bunch of children in. And my great-grandmother's aunt and uncle said, okay, we, we, here's, here's a, a little girl, 12 years old. We're dropping her off. Well, the lady behind the desk took one look at my great-grandmother, looked at her from head to toe, and in Spanish said, we don't want her. She's a mess. We only accept children of the wealthy. That, that stuck with my great-grandmother for 84 years of her life. Because you know what? My great-grandmother, whenever she was confronted with faith or Jesus or, or the church, she always thought up in her mind whether this was right or not, whether it was realistic or not. She thought, well, you have to, belong, you, you have to, be, you have to look a certain way. You, you have to behave a certain way. You, you must have a certain amount of net worth in order to belong there. And, and I can't go there. And I'm ashamed of who I've become. And, and I don't look that way. So I can't, I, I'm not good enough. When my grandmother was 96, she gave her life to Jesus Christ, and my grandfather, her son, became a Christian finally at the age of 82, about four years before he passed away. And I thought to myself whenever I heard that, two generations of the same family almost missed eternity because someone had misrepresented what the community of Jesus is really all about. You see, Jesus not only delivers us from darkness, from our brokenness, but he delivers us to community. That's why he defeated death. And so here in just a minute, I, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna close in prayer. But you know, I, as I read that story this past week over and over again, I read about how, how this man walked away with no more chains. He, he was no longer shackled. He was no longer in bondage. And again, the scars on his hands and his feet were probably still there. And for a time, it was probably a little bit awkward for him. He, he didn't know how really to live because he was so used to being bound up. And I know that some of us, as, as we hear this guy's story, we think, you know what? I feel like I'm bound up right now. 
I'm being kept from true community because deep down inside, I'm, I'm harboring some bitterness. I'm harboring some anger. I'm, I haven't forgiven him or her for what she did or what he did. I was counting on him to, to come through, but it didn't. And so whenever I say that word anger, bitterness, lacking forgiveness, some of us, we immediately have somebody that comes to mind. And here's the thing. We can't really experience true community. We can't really live in the fullness of what Jesus came to give us until we learn to forgive and until we learn to be one with others. And so I just want you to close your eyes for, for just a second, all right? All right, what name, what, what face comes to mind whenever I say bitterness? Anger, lacking forgiveness. Who do you hold a grudge towards? Now I get it that you probably have a lot of good reasons for being angry, what they did was wrong, you were the victim, you shouldn't have been there, you got mauled and, and it was by accident, you, you didn't mean to be there and yet you were and you have a right to be angry in the way that, the way that you are, I, I get it. But if you really wanna take a step towards this community that Jesus had in mind, it, I think it'd be far too easy for us to, to hear a message like this and to not do anything about it I did this this past week, it's really hard. But if you wanna surface the courage to take just one little step, I want you to pull out your phone right now. And I want you to text whatever name, whatever person came to mind, and I just want you to say, hey, can we talk? I'm not asking you to forgive them. I'm not asking you to run the mile that is gonna require, that's gonna be required to mend this relationship back together, because you know what? There's a lot of hurt, there's a lot of pain there. And it takes time. Forgiveness is not just a one-time decision. It's not just a switch that you flip. It's a process. It's a journey. But you know what? Sometimes the hardest step in that journey is initiating the conversation. And so pull out your phone right now, and I just want you to text whoever that is. If you're up for this, okay? Don't feel any pressure to do it. But if you're up for it, simply text that person, can we talk? And have a conversation with them. And that conversation is going to be full of a lot of just angry, angry words and, and you tell them and, and, and take steps towards mending that relationship back together. It's not gonna be easy, but this is what true community looks like. And if everybody was doing, if, if, if it were easy, everybody'd be doing it, but we're a world that's lonely because we're a world that personalizes a lot of anger and hurt. Let me pray for us, all right? God, I know a lot of us, we're hurting right now and we have a reason to be angry. We have a reason to be upset because we got hurt, we got mauled. We weren't supposed to be there, but we, we were and they took advantage or they wounded me or, or they, I was counting on him or her to always be there and then I came home one night and, the, and they weren't or God, a lot of us are, are living in this kind of perpetual state of, of trying to pay someone back for what they did to us. And yet the truth is, whenever we live in this state of lacking forgiveness, it's not the other person that's bound up. It's not the other person that's punished. But we're the ones who are really in bondage. And so God, I, I pray for everybody who is listening to me. You would give us the strength and the courage to do what needs to be done, to take the necessary steps towards forgiveness and towards unity with one another. 
And God, before, before that even happens, would you just remind us all over again, because this is our true motivation, remind us all over again, that even when you had every right to overlook us, to cast us out, to reject us, you made us belong. You died in our place because you wanted community with us that, that much. And so God, help us to be the people that you long for us to be, to be light in the midst of darkness and to walk free. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.